Today we will finish our time uh, looking at these core distinctives of the church, one of which, of course, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, we're going to just focus upon the core of the gospel, namely how we as sinners are made right with a holy God. And a very fitting passage is Galatians 2, verse 15 to 21. So I'm going to read out Galatians chapter 2, verse 15 to 21. This is God's word. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is God's word. There are a number of words and phrases that Christians use that kind of make up this Christianese, uh, this sort of language that we speak in. And a lot of the words that we use end up losing their significance because we throw them around so casually. So for example, the word gospel is of course something that we hold dear, but it kind of has become this word that you just attach to anything to show why you're faithful. So there's all sorts of movements to do with um, living gospel-centered lives, planting gospel-healthy churches or gospel-empowered preaching. And it just kind of becomes this word that you just attach to it to say, hey, we're, a, we're faithful people. And the problem with attaching it to almost everything, you know, gospel-centered hospitality, is basically that it loses its significance and all of a sudden becomes sort of a catch-all word. And so a lot of people have a misunderstanding about what the gospel actually is. And we want to make sure as a church that we understand the gospel, meaning good news. We want to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we want to understand what is at the core of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, getting the gospel right is immeasurably important because getting the gospel wrong has eternally disastrous consequences. So in Galatians chapter 1, the main reason why Paul is writing this letter, we read from verse 6 to 9, he says to the Galatians, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach 
to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you. Let him be accursed. That is to be damned, to be destined to hell. Anyone who is peddling a distortion of the true gospel is damned. And it's not simply those who are peddling the false message, but also people who are following that false message. Galatians chapter 5, Paul addresses this where he's speaking to the Galatians and he says, if you Galatians accept circumcision, this is in chapter 5 verse 2, which is basically him saying, if you believe that there is something that you do physically to merit God's favor, whether it is circumcision or keeping Jewish dietary laws, whatever it may be, if you think this way, then Christ will be of no advantage to you. He says, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. That's not like you're just a second class Christian and you're still going to be okay. No, that's you're damned. You've fallen away from Christ. You're severed from Christ. Christ is our only hope. So the consequences for getting the gospel wrong are eternally disastrous. And we want to make sure we have clarity on the core of the gospel. And this is what we're going to focus on today. The reason we want to focus on it is because there are many other things that we will do as Christians and many other things that are informed by the gospel, things like the kingdom of God and how to live under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. But the gospel is not simply the news that Jesus reigns or simply the news that uh, the kingdom of God has been inaugurated or that there is a kingdom of God. The gospel is how we actually enter that kingdom. The gospel is how we actually enter under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, namely through Christ himself becoming the atoning sacrifice in our place to then bring us as washed and clean people into and under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. So there's a lot of confusion around the gospel today. And I want to say that the core of the gospel is how we as sinners are made right with a holy God. That's the core of the gospel, the good news of how we as sinners are made right with a holy God. And this is our focus today, and this is what Paul addresses to the Galatian churches. So let's firstly understand what was happening in Galatia. Galatia was this region made up of multiple churches, and there were these people who would come in causing all sorts of chaos. The main issue in Galatia was that there were these people called the Judaizers who were uh, Jew, ethnically Jewish people who somewhat wanted to follow Jesus as the Messiah, but they wanted to keep all of the Jewish customs. And in that sense, they distorted the gospel. Notice Paul says in verse seven, they distort the gospel, which is to say they're not coming up with a brand new gospel. They're not presenting something new. They're taking the existing gospel and then they are perverting it and distorting it. And that's often the way that the devil works is not to come up with some brand new thing, but to take some truth and then just twist it a little bit. And that's how people are led astray. Just like when you're at the beach and a gentle rip leads you about 500 meters away from the flags, slowly but surely over time. And so it is with distortions of the gospel. They lead you 
astray. So these Judaizers have distorted the good news by saying that these old customs that were there under the Mosaic law, these Jewish customs like dietary laws, like how Jews couldn't eat with Gentiles. Gentiles are just anyone who's not ethnically Jewish. Jews couldn't eat with Gentiles because they were considered unclean. You and I would be considered unclean under that law. And this had resulted in a separation between Jew and Gentile. So Peter, as this leading apostle, who uh, knew that the gospel was going out to all people because of what happened in Acts 10 and Cornelius and all of that sort of stuff. And he was influenced by these people so that we read in chapter 2 that Peter actually began withdrawing from Gentiles and keeping these, this separation from the Gentiles. Which, which Paul rebukes of Peter. And the main thing is that they had then forgotten that the wall of hostility, which separated Jew and Gentile, this wall of hostility was broken down in the gospel. Well, this is difficult for you and I to understand because we live in this world where there is no distinction, but it's an incredible reality that for thousands of years, there was this wall of hostility. Literally in the temple, there was a place where it said, Gentiles come no further. You stay out only for Jewish people. And there was a dividing wall that separated them. And then the marvelous reality of the gospel was that all of a sudden Jew and Gentile come together as one in Christ. But they had gotten this wrong. And all of that, all of that idea of separation, all of these issues, they are really just symptoms of a deeper problem. And the deeper problem that was present in Galatia was to do with the core of the gospel. And at the core of the gospel was to do with how we as sinners are made right with a holy God. Are we made right with God entirely by our faith in Christ? Or is there something that we physically must do, something else necessary to merit God's favor? That's at the core of the problem. The Judaizers believed that it was still necessary for followers of Jesus to be circumcised, that it was still necessary for them to keep the Jewish dietary laws, that it was still necessary for them to separate in some sense from Gentile sinners, so to speak. Now, we have to be careful here not to go all the way to an antinomian approach, which means lawlessness. We want to be careful to say, actually, there is an obedience required for followers of Jesus Christ. But the question at the heart of this is whether our obedience comes before God's acceptance upon us or whether our obedience comes because we have God's acceptance and out of his loving favor poured out upon us, we live obedient lives. That's at the core of the question here. And the marvelous reality of the gospel is that complete acceptance by God, acceptance in the sense of God actually declaring us right, declaring us forgiven and declaring us right in his eyes. That's what I'm meaning by acceptance by God. Complete acceptance by God does not come through outward religious practices, but through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the marvelous reality of the gospel, which means that salvation is a gift from God to be received rather than an entitlement. For example, we, uh, most of us probably work and we receive pay from our employer and every fortnight when our pay comes in, I'm sure that no one is throwing a party saying, wow, what a generous gift from my employer. 
They've gifted me with pay. No, we have worked for that. We've earned it. We expect it. And we'll get really frustrated if it doesn't come in on time. We expect it to come. Now, in contrast to that, perhaps some employers at this time of year may give a bit of a Christmas bonus. Let's say they give you a whopping Christmas bonus, like half of your year's salary, and you've done nothing for it. That is a gift. And you will be throwing a party because of that, because you very clearly realize you've done nothing to earn that. It is a generous gift from your employer. This is the grace of God. Salvation is an undeserved gift from God which means that the most morally upright man, I mean the most impeccable human being on this planet, does not deserve God's salvation, is not deserving in any way of his acceptance. Rather, they are deserving of eternal punishment because of their rebellion against God. And so here's where we come to a crucial piece of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Gospel meaning good news. We, of course, need to understand the bad news in order to understand the good news. In fact, the more we understand the bad news, the greater the good news sounds. And the bad news is that our hearts, regardless of what we think, in our natural state, they are rebellious against God and rebellious people must be punished. That's the bad news. In our rebellion, we have sinned against a holy God and a holy and just God must punish that sin and we as sinners therefore must be punished, not just with a slap on the wrist, but with a severe punishment of eternal fire in hell. Now, many people in our day will often say things like, but I have a good heart and I have good intentions. I, I hear this a lot from people where they say, you know, I, I may have lied from time to time. I may have done some shady stuff in my past, but really I have a good heart and I want to do what's right. And I think God will accept of me because of my heart. Now, this line of thinking fails in several areas, just to mention two. Number one, the reason why it is not sufficient to say, I have a good heart or I have good intentions, is because this is simply incompatible with the biblical truths on the human heart. Jeremiah 17, 9, the human heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? Genesis 6, 5, where God gives this diagnosis, you might say, of the human condition. And what's his diagnosis of the human heart? He recognizes that every intention of the thoughts of man is only evil all the time. That's a really depressing diagnosis of the human heart. Now, if you come to the New Testament, it's not like anything has changed. Paul says in Romans 5 that we are, in our natural state, enemies of God. Or in Romans 8, we are hostile in our minds against God. So you may be apathetic toward Christ. You may even appreciate some of Jesus' teachings and think that you have a respect for all religions. But the reality is that you in your natural state have a rebellious heart against God. That's the reality. Often the sign of that rebellion is actually that we presume to know better than God, that we presume to know our hearts better than the God who created us. And that's merely a sign of our own rebellion against him. So that fails in that first area. The second area that it fails to believe that we actually at our core are good people is that it simply fails to recognize the holiness and justice of God. God's holiness 
and justice requires the punishment of every bit of sin. To be holy is literally to be set apart. That's the idea of holiness. It is to be set apart. God is set apart from every bit of wickedness and sin. And for him to allow sin in his presence without some form of sacrifice or without some form of cleansing would compromise his perfect holiness. He simply could not do it. We know experientially how you know, a single white dot can completely ruin a beautiful white wedding dress. A tiny little mark blemishes completely a crystal white wedding dress. How much more would sin corrupt a perfectly pure and unblemished God? How much more would that tiny bit of sin, though we don't have a tiny bit of sin, but if we did, it would still corrupt and impurify God's perfection. And so to maintain God's perfect standard of justice, he simply must punish every bit of injustice. He's a good judge. He must punish wrongdoers. Otherwise, he would no longer be a faithful and just judge. So a holy and just God requires punishment to satisfy his perfect standard. Now, here we come to the crucial aspect of understanding the bad news. This is the last bit of understanding the bad news before we then get to the good news. And there is good news coming. God's punishment for sin is not directed toward our environment. God's punishment for sin is not directed toward the bad people who influenced us. You will not be able to blame your mother or your father or your pastor. You will not be able to blame that bad teacher who really scarred you for your sin. You simply won't be able to blame someone else. The punishment for sin is directed toward the sinner. God doesn't simply send the sin to hell or that person who caused you to sin. We take responsibility for our sin. Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed to man to die once and then face judgment. Romans 5, 12, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. No one is sinless except God. And we are immersed in an environment in this day and age that does all it can to absolve us of our responsibility for sin. I mean, we love blaming anyone else other than ourselves and no less in Christian circles. In many churches, we've even changed our vocabulary to soften the load of sin so that many people now talk of sin in terms of brokenness. Well, we're just broken people. You know, you're broken, I'm broken. Let's just be broken together and work out how to be put together by Jesus. The only issue with that is that brokenness is very, very convenient for our buffered self because brokenness implies that someone else has done something to break us or it was an accident, that we're not actually responsible for our brokenness. Now, that's a lie, and it's not a faithful representation of sin. If we are broken in any way, it is because we have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God, and we are corrupted by sin, and so we are broken in that sense. We are held accountable for our sin. So to summarize the bad news, the human heart is not inclined toward good, and even if it was, our good intentions do not satisfy God's standard. The reality is that a 
holy God is furious with those who rebel against him by refusing to acknowledge him as their God and refusing to walk in obedience to his design. So the gospel is not for well-meaning people. The gospel is not for people who think that they have good intentions. Sure, they've lied a bit. Sure, they've lusted over people. But really, at their core, they have a good heart. The gospel is not for people who just need some help to get their life on track. The gospel is for rebellious, wicked people like you and me who recognize their unworthiness to even be a slave in the house of God. The gospel is for evil, wicked hearts and for those like you and me who recognize their evil and wicked heart that is unworthy to approach God, there is good news. There is wonderful news to be shared. And so we come to that in Galatians 2. From 2.15, we read Paul saying in Galatians 2, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Justified again is this idea of God declaring you right, not only forgiving you, but declaring you right as though you have done everything right, complete acceptance by God in terms of his approval of you. And to, at the core of this is nothing to do with what we have done, but everything to do with what God has done in Jesus Christ. The only thing we do is turn in faith, that is to trust in Jesus Christ. Now, what does it mean to have faith in Christ? I've said this before, that it seems like we're often at danger of taking the George Michael approach of just got to have faith. That famous song, and it's like we've just got to have faith, and it's this wafty idea of just got to have faith. What is the faith in? Who is the faith in? Where is the faith directed to? It's not just this wafty idea of I've just got to have faith and I'll be okay. No, your faith must be in someone. Here is the first aspect of our trust. It is that we are trusting in the concrete reality. Our faith is in the concrete reality that Jesus Christ has lived a perfect life of obedience. I mean, an unblemished life, not one single wrong to satisfy God's requirements for mankind to live in perfect obedience. So as much as we are called to have faith, we're actually called to have faith in the faith of Christ, or rather in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That's what we're trusting in, that Jesus has been utterly faithful in his life on earth in every single way in order to satisfy God's requirements for man to live faithfully before him. And now that life, that life of faithfulness from Jesus Christ is now available for us to be received by faith, by trusting in that very life. And this is the life that we simply could not live. Paul says in verse 16, by works of the law, no one will be justified. That is to say, by external religious practices, no one will be accepted by God. Paul, of all people, 
knew that regardless of how diligently we worked to keep God's perfect standard, we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. We all do. And when you come to Jesus' teachings, often people like to portray Jesus, you know, as this meek and mild guy who just said, do unto others as you would have them do to you, and he's going to love all people. Well, Jesus was the one who taught that not only is adultery wrong, but lusting is a sign that you are an adulterer in your heart. Not only is murder wrong, but hating another brother is a sign that you are a murderer at the core of your being. And this is what Jesus taught. And on top of that, you have to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. What hope is there for us in our natural state to meet that standard? Well, there is hope. There is hope because there is a life of perfect obedience to all of that and more that is available to be received by faith. Now, before we get to how this life is truly received by us, in verses 17 to 19, Paul just has to correct some misunderstandings here because of the radical nature of what he's saying, the radical nature of sinners being accepted by God through nothing other than faith. And so in verses 17 and 19, he has to correct some misunderstandings because people would say, well, if Christ accepts of sinners... Does that make Christ a servant of sin? Paul says, of course not. No way. He then explains that to return to the Mosaic law that maintains a separation between Jew and Gentile, that requires these acts of obedience in order for acceptance by God, if you return to that, which Christ has already broken down, then you actually make yourself to be a lawbreaker. You make yourself to be a transgressor. And now in verse 19, Paul explains, and here's the, 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 the crux of how we then receive this life. Paul explains how we meet God's standard, even though we, in and of ourselves, can never meet God's standard. He explains that through the law, I died to the law. That is to say, the law which we are all held captive under in terms of God's requirement for man to live in obedience to his standard, the law demands that I die because I'm a sinner and the wages of sin is death. And so Paul is saying the law demands that I die and the way that I get around that is not to, not to sort of circumvent the law. And it's not like God says, you know what, maybe I was a bit too strict. Maybe I'll just change it. You know what? I realized I was a bit too harsh. Actually, you can come in anyway. God, of course, doesn't do that. He leaves the bar right where he set it initially and right where he keeps it. But Paul says, though I'm condemned under the law, through the law I die to the law, because while I'm here condemned under the law, Jesus Christ came as one who was born under the law, who lived according to the law, and then who died the death of a lawbreaker, even though he did nothing wrong, and he died that death in my place to bring me out from under the law in order to now live to God. The law was that which stood against me. Christ Jesus came out from behind the law to suffer the penalty of the law in my place to bring me back to a right standing with my God. So Paul says, I'm now dead to the law. When Christ died to fulfill the requirements of the law, so I died with him. That's my death. I died that death. 
So the law's demands on my life have been met by Christ that I can live to God. And now here is how we receive the perfect righteousness of Christ through his life of obedience. This is a wonderful passage, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What a wonderful truth. Here is the core of the gospel. It is through our intimate union with Christ. Notice the union language here. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's just one word in the original language, all meaning I have been crucified with Christ, together with him. It is through that union where our sin is punished in him and his righteousness is given to us. So it's not simply, as some people might understand, as though um, we see Christ's sacrifice and we kind of throw our sin to him on the cross. He catches it and says, yeah, I'll take this for you. Here, have some righteousness. No, there's nothing distant about it. It's because we are united with him in his death. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ in his death. I died, my sin right there, not in part, but the whole, nailed to the cross. Paul says, therefore, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. My life is gone. It's dead. I'm now united with Christ because in his death, I died, but through his life, I now have life. Christ has opened his garment of righteousness. So it's not as though he throws something over. It's rather that he brings us into himself. Our sin is dealt there in the cross and his righteousness becomes our very own as we are united with him, as we are united with Christ. So that not only is the penalty for our sin handed down in that moment there on the cross, but we we have been crucified with Christ, but also God the Father looks upon us as we are in Christ. He looks upon each of you who have trusted in Jesus Christ as though you have that perfect life of Christ. He looks upon you and sees my beloved son, my beloved daughter. You've been washed, you've been cleansed, you have the righteousness of Christ and we get that through our union with him. And all of this is an undeserved gift. The moment you start attributing merit to that, the moment you start believing that you are somehow worthy of this, then it's no longer Christ living within you. You've separated yourself from him. You're trying to regain that life of sin that can merit God's favor. The moment you start believing that the grounds of God's acceptance of you, that which makes him say, I declare you righteous. The moment you start believing that that comes through your Christian behavior, then you have separated yourself from Christ. Of course, we are called to live holy lives, but the grounds of God's acceptance upon us does not come through our ability to live a holy life, but through his ability to cleanse us and make us holy and then say, now live in obedience to me, you who have been washed. So many people today, I see this a lot with teenagers at uh, the school that I'm a, a chaplain at. So many people today assume that they're a Christian because they go to a youth group or because 
they keep a base level of Christian morality. They try not to swear. They're hopefully not going to have sex before marriage. You know, they're keeping this base level of morality. And this becomes the reason in their minds of why God accepts of them. Because they live like a Christian in some sense, and they believe that that's why God accepts of them. But that is not a life that has been crucified with Christ. That is not a life of intimate union with him. That is a life where someone recognizes, yes, I need a savior, but they assume that their acceptance from God comes as Jesus helps them with their existing life to have a better life. They're holding on to their life. Let me give an all too common example of this before we then draw to a close based on today's Christian culture. The the popular perversion of the gospel today is like this new form of prosperity gospel. It's not like the old prosperity gospel, which says, come to Jesus, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and successful. Everything will go well for you. It's not like that because that's not really cool anymore. That's like a sellout if you want to be rich. Rather, the new form of prosperity in our world is really this idea of being authentic, of, of being true to yourself, of living a really flourishing life. You know, you do you. Be entrepreneurial and express who you are. And that's kind of the idea of what salvation looks like to the rest of the world. Follow your dreams and desires. And that has crept its way into the church so that the subtle perversion of the gospel is that Jesus really wants you to live a fulfilled and flourishing life and you can trust in Jesus to make that happen. You can trust in Jesus to make your life look marvelous as you follow your dreams and desires. And this inevitably nullifies the grace of God. It makes it void because it does not require anyone to die to themselves. The perversion of that false gospel is that it really just requires you to find your life, find your true life, and Jesus is going to fix you in that so that your existing life can be one of flourishing. And that's not the gospel. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. That life, and Paul had all of the credentials you could possibly want in Judaism, and he says they're garbage. I don't care about them anymore. I want this life that is found in Christ. And the only way I can have this life is if I don't cling to that old life, but rather I die to it. So my death is Christ's death. And now I have this life that is Christ. And that's the life that I want. In verse 21, Paul says, if that is the case, if you're returning to this idea that you can merit God's favor, or if you're believing that your life is somehow worthy of God to fix and you can keep it and he'll make it better, then Christ died for no purpose. There's no purpose in his death. Either Christ completely pays the full penalty for sin and completely washes you and completely offers a brand new life or his death is meaningless for you. If you don't rest in that perfect and completed work of Christ, then Paul says you've fallen from grace. You've fallen away from grace. And see, often the reason many people stumble at the reality of this message of Christ's perfect and complete work of atonement is really because it shatters our pride. It shatters our pride. The gospel leaves us in a vulnerable place of having to accept the fact that we are utterly helpless 
and we are deserving of eternal punishment and there is nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to help that. And that's a vulnerable place to be. No one wants to be in that place. And the cross of Christ is the only thing that shatters that pride without completely destroying us because the cross of Christ reminds us that you are a worse sinner than you could ever imagine and that God's love is far greater than you could ever imagine. It shatters our pride because we look at Christ's suffering on the cross and we see that it was our sin, not someone else's sin. It was our sin that held him there, that required such a death as that, such an excruciating, horrific death, much more the wrath of God poured out upon him. And yet as we look to him on the cross, as we look to that man upon the cross, we see that his love is so great to endure such a death as that in our place. And so the cross reminds us that you are a worse sinner than you could ever imagine, but God's love is far greater than you could ever imagine. And this is the hope of the gospel. And this is where we rest. We do not rest in our ability to live a life worthy of God's acceptance. That's not where we find our rest. We rest in the perfect work of Christ. We rest in his perfect righteousness that we could never attain to. We rest in the blood of Christ, which is so pure that it cleanses us from all unrighteousness. The most horrific and filthy sinners of all time cleanse completely by that pure blood. We rest in that. We rest in the overwhelming love of Christ that could never have been earned. You could never do anything to earn that love, but rather it is a love that is freely offered to sinners because God loves. That's why. We rest in the way that this love comes directly to us. Look at what Paul says here. Often we want to push against the individualistic nature of our society, and rightly so, where we want to take every truth of the Bible and say, this is mine. But here's where we don't want to overcorrect. No, we want to apply this right to ourselves. Notice Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He loves me. He loves you. You individually. What a love. And that was while we hated him. That was while we were hostile in our minds. That was while we were enemies. What kind of love would endure that while we rebelled against him? This is the core of the gospel, that as sinners, we are made right with God. God's complete acceptance upon us through faith in Christ who gave himself for our sins so that we might be cleansed and forgiven and united with him in life and death. There is no claim of merit. We cannot claim any merit. There are no good intentions that are enough to satisfy God's holy standard. There are simply evil, rebellious and wicked hearts that turn in faith to Jesus Christ and receive absolute forgiveness and absolute cleansing and absolute acceptance of God through nothing other than trust in Jesus Christ. We are brought from death to life, from poverty to riches, from estrangement from our Father to now adopted as sons and daughters. As the hymn writer says, nothing in our hands we bring, only to the cross we cling. This is the core of the gospel. No claim of merit, God's complete acceptance through faith in Jesus 
Christ in his perfect life of faithfulness, culminating in what we are about to celebrate now in taking of the Lord's Supper, culminating in the cross of Christ. 